prevention doesn't mean that you avoid the occurrence of an injury or any event in each individual. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Clinical Athlete is a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who walk the walk and specialize in the management of athletes. We have two missions. Our first mission is to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust. And our second mission is to nurture the education and growth of those professionals through a community that strives to learn and get better. This podcast is one way that we fulfill those missions. To learn more about us and to get involved, join the free Kalu Community Facebook group for great discussions, resources, events, and networking opportunities. Hit the link in the show notes. My name is Quinn Hennick. I am a physical therapist, strength and conditioning coach, mediocre weightlifter, and co-founder of Clinical Athlete and Kalu. We are pumped for this show. This is the 100th episode of the Clinical Athlete Podcast. 100 episodes in about five years, and we could not have done it without you. It's pretty amazing how far six listeners can carry an entire show. But seriously, thank you so much for the support over the years. Hopefully, there are many more to come. We didn't necessarily have anything super special planned for number 100, but it just so happened that one of our favorite people, Franco Impelzeri, and his team came out with a new paper titled Prevention Versus Risk Reduction or Mitigation. Why Create Unnecessary Battles? And if you remember, Franco, from our training load episode way back in 2019, then you know we had to get him on again to talk about that paper and the misconceptions around the term injury prevention. Also, quick note, my audio cut out towards the back half of the show, so it's just John and Franco closing things out. But you'll definitely want to stick around for all of that because Franco dropped some real gems around the process of developing knowledge. We hope you enjoy. Franco, thanks so much for coming back on. Thank you for the invitation. (laughs) We're pumped. I can't believe it's been almost exactly three years since, honestly, actually, 2009. It's been four years. Holy moly. Yeah, there was a lot of of things in between. Bad world. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, the world's quite different in general between now and then. Well, there's a lot. So there's a lot that we could talk about. I want on this particular show to at least anchor the conversation to a piece that that you and your team did recently. Um, Lead author Ian Schreier, yourself, and Steven Stovitz, that was titled Prevention versus Risk Reduction or Mitigation. Why Create Unnecessary Battles? And I think the topic of that alone, or the the title of that paper alone, really, I think it's going to hit with, with our six listeners, because in the clinical scenario, even these terms, prevention and risk reduction, risk mitigation have been pretty hot button topics. And so before we really dig in, can you just give a brief overview right now of where you're just, you know, a little background on yourself and where you're at in your career and and just kind of general, just, just in case people are, are unfamiliar with you and your work. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, as I was mentioning before, I came back in sports science five years ago here in Australia as a as a professor at the University of Technology, Sydney. But the first part of my career was 
sport uh, for 10 years and orthopedics uh, for other 10 years where I work on clinical outcomes. And uh, it was when I started to become more aware about other areas, other contexts, uh, other areas, I mean, for example, epidemiology, which is an area that I'm very interested uh, in. And um, so now I'm, I'm trying to, to develop studies on injury, even if it's very difficult. Uh, I, I mean, it's very difficult, both methodologically and both because you need a lot of data and good data, and this is the most difficult part, in, in my opinion, uh, when you want to study injuries. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm moving a bit uh, towards meta research. Now we have also a postdoc, uh, postdoc with um, working with me on uh, meta research, so understanding the methods that are used in uh, in, um, in this case in sports science and medicine. And I think that that meta research idea is a good place to start with this. So, how did this this paper? How did the idea get prompted? This idea of of just even um, revisiting terms like injury prevention, injury risk reduction. What prompted that? Well, uh, actually, that's uh, something I discussed a, a long time ago with uh, Ian first, uh, Yash Schreier, and after with Steve. And with, because when I moved back in, in, in sports science and medicine, I, I found some topics that actually were new for me. And one that started to to appear was about the use of the term prevention. But initially I didn't really consider because it was for me just a semantic issue and I was not really interested. At one point I started to see more often this, uh, this idea visible on social media. And one year ago I was discussing with Ian about this problem and said, look, it seems that it's becoming an issue in, in sport medicine. And actually Ian said, yeah, maybe, but I mean, it's not really relevant because it's uh, it's a bit naive as an idea. But it happened recently that we had some experiences as editors uh, or as a reviewers that other people, let's say reviewers, uh, start to say to the authors, "Now you you can use uh, you can use uh, prevention. You have to avoid to use prevention," and this is what trigger basically our paper, because, you know, like for training law terminology, I don't really care if people want to use one kind of terminology, it's fine. If they don't want it, it's fine as well. So I don't really care. The problem is that when you start to impose your perspective to other people, which is something that, of course, you are allowed to do, but you need to support in a, in a sound and logical way your argument, your statement, and, and everything. So I, we we couldn't see any anything really strong in the in the uh, let's say justification to avoid the, the term prevention. The main the main ideas written also in some papers is that you don't prevent the event or, or the disease, whatever, in all people, but just some and therefore you cannot use prevention because prevention indicates more when you prevent something from occurring to to all individuals and and they, it, actually it was confusing because the that's not what is pre, that's not the official the official the, the common definition of prevention in medicine and epidemiology and it, the, the risk difference is not 
the only thing that you measure when you want to calculate the effectiveness or the effect of a prevention program. So we start to see that we're at basically conceptual errors. And, and so I, I could convince Ian and Stephen to, to, to write this paper. And that's why you see the, the preprint out. Can we dig into kind of the misnomers behind the term prevention, the misunderstandings? Because again, I'm com- you know my perspective and John's perspective as well is that of of clinical, the clinical side of things, which I know is almost like kind of a side co- complementary version of what we're talking about because we're talking about it, it from a from a, a research perspective and and a studying studying phenomena perspective, and then also communicating these ideas to the patient, to the athlete. But can you, can you dig into the idea of prevention, the differentiation between prevention at the population level and at the individual level and kind yeah. of help us understand the term a little bit better? Yeah. Well, the, the problem is that in most of the discussions I have seen basically until now, the, the, the issue was never, uh, was rarely at least uh, about how to communicate things to the patients. Uh, people focus on the technical meaning of the term prevention. And as a, 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 in our interaction, as already anticipated, these are two different topics. And I may understand that you may have some concern on using the terms prevention in clinical setting, but... Again, it doesn't mean that the term prevention is wrong as a term. Maybe maybe you misinterpret or whatever, which is fine. But this um, idea to avoid using prevention is an idea that, at least uh, uh, until now, was mainly about the, the literature and the sport injury sport prevention world. So it wasn't, it wasn't really contextualized to, let's say, the... the clinician-patient relation, but was more an academic discussion, let's say. So if we stay in that realm, it's, it's uh, the term prevention is, is very common. Uh, just to, to summarize, one, some of the reasons why some people suggested that you shouldn't use prevention is that, uh, that prevention means that you stop an event from occurring and then this is not considered possible for injuries. And because they say, no, you decrease the risk, you don't prevent the injury occurring, which is, I understand why they, they wrote that or they said that, but is technically very wrong. Um, but, and so that, that's one of, uh, of the main idea that, that actually we try to challenge is, uh, is this. Now there, there are new reasons such as uh, um, legal liability or these kind of things uh, that, again, this is a bit more tricky because when you en- enter in the legal uh, realm is a bit, I mean, everything can be, can be questioned. Uh, that's actually the work of, uh, of lawyers uh, is to create a case around maybe a term that was used in a contact or in a discussion. But again, this is another another kind of uh, debate. And if we talk about internationally, about this internationally, we may have to think that not all countries may be as litigious as other countries, at least, uh, and not necessarily this term is uh, problematic everywhere. 
So even if you are su- suggesting that this may be a problem from a legal perspective, it should be a bit contextualized, cannot be generalized in, in, uh, for all countries all over the world. And, but it seems to me more a new argument, this, uh, than, uh, because the, the original one was about prevention is not, uh, uh, you cannot prevent the injury in any individual and therefore you can just decrease the risk. And the error is because uh, uh, prevention doesn't mean that you, you decrease, you, you, you avoid the occurrence of an injury or any event in each individual. Uh, if in the paper we wrote some definitions that are available in the literature, including okay the uh, the, um, the the World Health Organization or the Council Council uh, or, or 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 the Dictionary of Epidemiology, which is a reference book, uh, and they all mention the action that uh, are are aim to um, avoid the occurrence of. Uh, of an injury, but actions aim to indicates an intention. It's not written then that you have to use that word when there is an intervention that decrease, that avoid the occurrence of uh, of uh, any event. And besides, when you calculate the risk difference, because the, now people talk about risk difference as the the, the measure that you actually uh, um, use in, in the studies, the the risk difference. Uh, in a randomized trial is means that in one group uh, there were less injuries and the reason why there, there are less injuries is because this uh, group of people were supposed to have an injury but with intervention they didn't have so this means that in some people the injury was prevented in the let's say dictionary um, uh, according to the dictionary meaning so in some people that were supposed to have uh, an injury didn't uh, didn't have an injury, and and this is the counterfactual approach to causation, and uh, so actually it fits what they what they say about uh, prevention, meaning that some some patients that were supposed to have an injury under the intervention didn't have an injury, and the the control group normally is used as a as a counterfactual. I mean, in a patient you cannot observe both. Uh, the, the the effects uh, of both the the intervention because or they or they are part of the intervention group or the control group, the control group actually act as a, as a surrogate of the intervention group uh, under the assumption that if if you switch the 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 the, the patients and the treatment to, in, to the two groups, they would have exactly the same result. So if the control group wouldn't would uh, Undergo under uh, would, uh, would complete the prevention program would have the same results as the real intervention group. So this this, this characteristic is called exchangeability. So basically, just what I want to say is that when you say that there is a risk reduction, you are basically saying that some patients that were supposed to have an injury didn't have the injuries under the intervention, and that's why you can calculate the risk difference. And this is exactly what they say that prevention was is supposed to be the definition of prevention and the the the, the, the justification that it, it doesn't work in the, in all the patients makes no sense because in some patients this actually is, is exactly what happens and uh, what people don't understand is that most of the studies 
I would say all the studies, unless using strange uh, complex designs, they refer to average population effects. So this means that if you are applying something in your population of patients, on average, that that is the direction of the effects, on average. But you don't know at the individual level what is going to happen. You know that if you have 10 patients and you work and you use uh, the same intervention in those 10 patients, on average, the, the, let's say the pain, for example, decrease in these uh, 10 patients or the, the, the number of injuries in these 10 patients will go down, but you don't know exactly who are the patients that will have the benefit and you don't actually don't know exactly how, may, uh, how less the injury will occur. And this is the uncertainty that we should also consider. So I'm not sure I was clear enough, but I hope so. Well, we, uh, for me, one thing that hit me pretty hard, and I'm, I'm glad you're back. It took me four years to recover from the burnt nerve endings from the first time we talked because Quinn and I were all in on the AC work ratio and immediately started questioning everything that we thought about life at that time. And oh. I think this particular topic hits home for us too because I, I took that stand. I took that stand clinically with my patients and with the athletes that I work with a lot where I was like, I'm just going to change my language around it because clinically saying prevention created a, a dichotomy for a lot of the people that were sitting in front of me. And they'd be like, well, you know, if we can prevent it, then that means, you know, you work with me and I don't get hurt anymore. But that's a different circumstance than when we're talking about scientific communication with one another. And it really hit hard. And Quinn, you're going to have to remind me the guy's name. But we were talking to an exercise scientist on the show and we asked him why they didn't use pain as a data point. And he said, no, it's too messy. It's too subjective. It's going to mess up my data. And I won't be able to communicate it to anybody else. And like there was a shift for my thought process. And when we look at this, like you said, internationally, we have to have some sort of definitive standards across the language that we use. So when we say prevention and we have clear definitions like you have in your paper, you have multiple definitions from multiple different organizations that say very, very similar to what you're talking about here, where it's we do an intervention, we see the effect we can have a negative effect or a positive effect and we call one prevention and everything else is clearly defined. We need that clear definition so that across scientific communication, we can all be on the same page and that people might fight back because of the clinical setting they're in and the feeling that it scratched the itch, right? Like that sounded so much more certain when I was like, well, no, it's, it's risk. We decrease the risk of you getting hurt. Like that felt better as a clinician when I was practicing. Yeah. But when yeah. you say it this way, like the communication from person to person to person has to be standardized to some level so that we can have effective continued research, especially. Yeah. It's also true that it depends. For example, a lot of people talk about risk, but a lot of people don't really understand what risk means uh, because risk is a probabilistic statement. And for example, the, the results of studies are translated in risk or communicated in risk, even if the studies don't present risks. And, uh, and just to give an example, risk alone doesn't mean a lot, especially in, in the area, in clinical area, because risk is a, a cumulative measure. So it's like to say there is a, 
a low risk of a lower risk of mortality after something. But it depends on the on the time on the time frame, because uh, if I can say that there is one hundred percent risk of mortality in each in everyone, because if you wait long enough, they will die sooner or later. And uh, that's why when you say when you communicate risk, you should always um, communi- specify the the, the time. Uh, over which this risk can be applied because the risk of an injury within one season is different than a risk of injury in two, three seasons or over the the entire career. So you can have 90% risk to have an injury over your career. You can have 10% risk of injury to have have a, a risk to have an injury within one season. So even if people say, oh, but risk is much clearer. No, it's not actually clearer because not a lot of people understand uh, probabilistic statements. They think they understand, but they don't. And normally you have to be also careful if you say there is a high risk, uh, how people interpret this high, what number they associate to high risk. Is above 50% because above 50% there is a, a direction, let's say, in the probability of the event, but some people just assign to high risk and 90%, 80% in their mind. This is just to say that when you communicate with people, you have uh, you may have issues, whatever the term you use. And you have to speak with them, you have to explain to them what you're saying, you have to understand if they are, if they understood what you said. But this is something I have seen in clinical setting my entire life. And so I, I don't really find this a, a specific concern uh, with the term prevention. This is a concern with any term you, you are going to use and depends on the on the background. If you talk about risk mitigation with someone that has a management background, they would interpret risk mitigation in a different way, probably even more correct than some clinicians, but it depends on their on their background. And if you are if you know you're talking with a manager, maybe you should think how what what's the best language to use, or you have to understand if they interpret what you're saying in the same way as someone else that has another uh, background. So I don't think that the point is uh, substituting uh, prevention with another term, risk mitigation, risk reduction, may be better in the communication with the patients, but not necessarily, maybe as confusing as prevention. And you cannot assume that all people, when you say prevention, uh, as I say, dichotomize the, the interpretation, maybe, maybe not. It's better to understand uh, asking them what, what they uh, what, what they think you, you just said. That's something, actually, I read some papers about that, that it's better to ask the, the, the patients to, to communicate to you what they understood in order to be on the same page, for example. So you can say, you know, tell me what you understood just to see if we, 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 there are no um, misunderstandings, for example. So I, I get what you're saying, John, and, uh, and the, but as I said, I, I also find strange that this issue is basically, is mainly in, in sport medicine only. I know a lot of people, uh, also medical doctors, working with cancer patients and they use the term prevention. This 
you have to take these drugs to prevent the risk of recurrence or, or whatever. So my question to you is why do you think this issue is now hot in, uh, in uh, sport medicine and, and is not that um, considered so relevant or there are not a lot of discussions with patients in other cardiovascular diseases, uh, uh, um, cancer, uh, even in uh, road accidents or disaster, they use the term prevention and they advertise intervention as a preventive measures. So why do you think there's a, this, this topic is not uh, so hot in other areas or even not considered at all? I'll be honest with you. I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think for, at least from my perspective, the, the feel of it was feeling more right. You know what I mean? Like when you're in that process and you're having a conversation and you're trying to talk to your patient and they're worried and concerned about their injury, it felt better to be like, well, we can decrease risk and not have so much of an onus on like prevention. But again, that's just a lack of understanding when it comes to the actual definitions the behind the, the word prevention and how it's being used. So for me, we looked at it, A is that, and then B is a differentiator. And this, we can actually take this into a whole different direction here if we want to. But we talked earlier about like what is evidence-based, right? Like what, what does that actually mean? And we've seen it kind of recur into, in my opinion, what I've seen at least is the evidence-based crowd is actually starting to eat itself a little bit because you read so many papers that now all of a sudden your own inherent bias starts to come through and you start to create other little tribes. And in this particular instance, the risk decreasers, the risk management type language became like another little tribe, just like other aspects of, of sports science have. And it's been fueled more by those conversations. So it's like, okay, it gives me a point of differentiation. It makes me different. I can get more patients this way or talk to more patients this way or have a better impact this way and communicate what I'm trying to do this way by saying I decrease risk rather than injury prevention. And it, it, it brought a new sexy feel to that conversation that some people just picked up and ran with. So like if it's a gut feel, that, that's what I would say. Um, but again, that comes down to kind of what we talked about before. Does that actually make you evidence-based? Does that actually make it so that you're, you're following what it is that you're, you're trying to? Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about this um, issue of communication with patients. And I was wondering whether it's true that if you use the term prevention, they really misinterpret this word because the, it seems to me that we, we, we are assuming that the way they interpret prevention is like we are thinking they interpret prevention. But for example, I asked to, to, to my family who are not in, in, in this area, and none of them provided me a definition of prevention, which is so extreme. So that's the, what I'm saying is that I first I'm not sure that every patient inter, or every uh, that most patients would interpret in the wrong way. I would be curious to understand this. Uh, really curious. But the main point is that you you can use 
terminology or definition that you think is more uh, suitable to your situation and your patient. That's absolutely fine. If you prefer to use risk reduction, risk mitigation, it's absolutely fine for me. I have nothing against that. And and in, when I speak with the athletes, I don't use the you know scientific jargon. Sometimes, uh, and actually, I'm I'm fighting for that because I think we can keep uh, we can go on using some field terminology because we know what that they, they understand what I mean, even if it's technically wrong. So in the communication for me, uh, every everything is fine as long as it's it's uh, it's. Um, accurate meaning that they, you are communicating exactly what you want to communicate and the, the information is more important the information is right so if you say risk mitigation or, or risk reduction and you think is there are more people that mis- and don't misinterpret this kind of communication it's fine so again as, as I said to to Queen these are two different topics and one if you want to discuss about how to communicate it's fine but it's not only prevention. This is a broader area, and there are a lot of terminology. Like you said, pain, uh, or uh, maybe, I don't know if you know, but in sports science, we have a lot of uh, soreness uh, scales, and they also ask, why are you asking soreness and not pain, for example? I'm, I'm, I'm not an English um, native speaker, but it's that, I mean, if they are synonymous, I would use pain. What's the problem? But they don't like to use pain. Say, so, ah, pain is too strong. The, they may think they have an injury. Soreness is can be more related, you know, to the to the pain or fatigue after a training. I have no idea if they are right or wrong. But that's why you don't you see so many uh, muscle soreness scale in in sports science and not pain. Even if what you ask is basically the same. So I cannot see that this difference between soreness and pain. But I said, fine, if you think is uh, is okay, is uh, it's clearer, it's fine. To be honest, I f- I found problems with soreness and pain uh, with both, because for example, players uh, tend to tell you uh, if they have an injury, or they had an injury, or they have some niggles, uh, they don't. Uh, if you are not specific when you ask the question, they combine all these painful sensations so they, they maybe they say eight because they have a specific uh, level of pain in a specific area while you were more interested in uh, muscle pain after for example centric exercise so they may not have a lot of pain because of the uh, strength training but they may have a pain because uh, for example contusion or something like that so even if it's they think it's clearer you, you can have problem also when you ask pain or soreness so I think is a is a is a bigger discussion. What may be what is interesting for me is how people create arguments, technical arguments, and that are n- not necessary in our opinion. So that's why we said that's not a battle. It's not a question of battle prevention. There are definitions. That's the definition of prevention. It's used every day. If you if you Google prevention uh, car accident, you see there are also international policies where the word prevention is used. There are also product and the drugs uh, sold and approved as a prevent uh, to prevent something. So prevention is used. And honestly, I haven't seen this discussion. I, I have seen only for Alzheimer, but that's a bit different area. 
But other than that, I haven't ever seen this uh, discussion, which doesn't mean that there isn't this discussion, but uh, for sure it's not that uh, relevant as a, in sport medicine. But again, it's uh, about the communication. I'm, uh, I understand the point, and I may also agree that if you use risk reduction, can be better in some situations, but not, not necessary, and, and it's very subjective. I mean... Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. Here's your brain break from this awesome discussion with Franco. Remember, if you're brand new to Calu and want to get more involved in all the things we do, join the free Calu Community Facebook group for great discussions and resources and lots of learning and networking opportunities. That's Calu, C-A-L-U Community on Facebook, or you can just hit the link in the show notes. Also, if you're one of our six listeners who enjoys this podcast, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get this information out to as many people as possible and maybe even have another 100 episodes. All right, back to the show. Uh, as a quick aside, John, who the um, our guest that you were talking about prior, that was Judd Kalkoven, which was a PhD student of... Uh, uh, yes. Franco. Yeah, yeah. So we, we actually need to have Judd back on the show because he's... Since since we had him on, he released his his dissertation and he's you know obviously been doing more work, so... Um, Another one of those great conversations. Full, yep. Coming full circle. Franco, you got a whole tree of them. You're, you're building an army. It's awesome. Um, oh, no, not an army. <laughs> I think the recent push of the biopsychosocial model of pain and injury and the idea of the fear that we're um, noceboing our our people with certain language, I think, is somewhat fed into this. The push against the term prevention, you know, the initial argument being, well, we shouldn't use the term prevention because we can't actually prevent injuries to we can stop that argument right there because of what you just said, Franco, is that well, actually, no, we can prevent injuries. It happens at the population level. So if we have a group and we know their baseline, we know their baseline rate of injury and we implement an intervention and yeah. they have let, and we track prospectively and that group now has a decreased rate of injury compared to their baseline rate. We have effectively decreased, we have prevented injuries. Now what we can't say is who in that group would have gotten injured had the, inter, had the intervention not been implemented. What individuals we can't, we can't do that because yeah. we don't have alternate universe. Yeah, mm, that, no, I don't want to be technical. What well, you said is like in a, in a court study prospectively, the fact right. that after the intervention they are they have a lower injury rate or risk or whatever you're measuring uh, may suggest that is effective uh, if you control for all the potential confounder. But think about the randomized trial, which is easier and a better situation. If you have one group that uh, um, that is have completed uh, an intervention, another group without that intervention, and that group have a lower uh, injury, let's say, rate compared to the other group, uh, you may infer that the difference in the, in the risk or the rates uh, is due to the intervention. And therefore, uh, you can say that in some individuals in the intervention group that were supposed to have an injury didn't have an injury. And the reason and the, the way you know that they were supposed to have an injury is by comparing with the control. And that's the reason why you have a control group. 
So the control group is, uh, is the equivalent of the counterfactual situation for your intervention group. And so if you have a difference, this means that for some individuals, injury were prevented completely within that time frame, of course. And this, again, that's like the risk. You have always to remember that everything we are talking about is relative to a specific time frame. If you change time frame, things can change. Uh, so you prevent injury in some individuals. But, and, and, but this is the same for any kind of intervention, drugs or whatever. We always refer to uh, uh, population effects, to effects in the population. These are average effects. You cannot know the individuals. And this is also the reason why the responder analysis that, I don't know if you are familiar, but there are studies showing, uh, for example, uh, the percentage of people improving in one group compared to the percentage of people improving in another group. And this is done by selecting a threshold about which is considered to be a responder, which is plenty of studies like that and are wrong, <laughs> absolutely wrong, because you can't uh, understand the individual response from a randomized trial, because you can just uh, understand the, 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 um, the average responses. What you can do is you can uh, maybe understand using some mediation analysis or maybe a group that seems to, a subgroup that seems to benefit a bit more than another, these kind of things that it's possible, but there's no way you can, um, uh, you can extract information on the individual response. To do that, you need a, a repeated crossover. Basically, what you should do is to understand if a patient's all uh, react in the same way and understand his variability. Because even if you don't do anything and you measure pain before and after, you will have some patients with a higher and other with a lower pain. Doesn't mean that the, the one with the higher, uh, uh, the, the, the intervention was effective or whatever you have done. It's just random variation. So yeah, it's a bit, again, it's, uh, it's uh, sorry if I interrupt you, but I want just to explain this because otherwise people in their clinical setting you can you can do what you suggested you measure something before and something at the end in your population and you may think that the difference is uh, um, an evidence that there is a effectiveness in reality this is not something you can do with your patients unless using on your patients some methodology to control for all the potential confounders which means for all the factors that can change the outcome, let's say pain or injury risk, uh, but are not related to what you have done, can be related to something else. Yeah, that's. So, I see uh, that as actually the um, a similar problem with using risk, the term risk reduction in the dialogue. Because for me, while it felt less black and white, risk reduction, it's like okay, there's going to be this implicit understanding that it that that an injury could still happen in the future, et cetera. It doesn't, we don't know if I implement an intervention and the person still gets injured. Well, maybe I actually did prevent it. Maybe they would have gotten injured sooner had we not done that intervention, or maybe the intervention actually increased their risk. But, but we, because we don't know any of that, I don't know if, us then having that initial conversation of using the term risk actually helped with anything in the long term versus just 
helped me as the clinician get past that icky conversation so that, so that I didn't, so that we could, you know, just not address it again. And yeah, and, that, yeah. no, no, that's a, that's a good point. And, and then this is, I think we added in the revised version as you, you, if you cannot say uh, prevention because you cannot prevent the injury in all the individuals, you cannot, you cannot even say risk reduction because you not, will not reduce the risk in any, in each individual. So is exactly the same problem. And I don't know if the patient then once they get like, if they get hurt again, all of those, does it really matter to them if maybe, well, maybe we did reduce your risk. Maybe, you know, maybe it was longer or maybe for me, it's, it's turned into not, not really using these terms much at all, but more so saying our goals are potentially to reduce the rate of recurrence, reduce the intensity of the occurrence of injury. If it happens again, it's, it doesn't set you back as far. And, or if it happens again, we've learned through the process ways to manage it better than you had before. Whereas before it, would be, it was unmanageable when this would happen, but now we've learned some things and that if it does happen again, we have better tools to manage it, but that's a completely different discussion from a clinical perspective. Yeah. Yeah, but this is the same problem we had. I, 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 I made a study on in orthopedics about the role of expectations. So there is an association between the expectations and the and the outcome. And when the expectations are too high, they they tend to be more disappointed. Um, but the the problem is that the expectations were too high, and because the the the, 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 the let's say the intervention was quite good. They they could do more, the physical function is better, pain is low, and these kind of things. But they expect to be able to come back, to play tournaments, and play three games in, a, in one day without any problem. So the expectations were too high, and the expectations uh, is something that we should, in my opinion, always try to understand in our patients. And But again, that's not related to the term prevention. This is for whatever you do, even if you say, with this, we decrease the risk of injury. You never know how they interpret that. And because maybe they still expect that they will not have anything because, oh, I'm doing a lot of things to decrease the risk. So why I'm doing, I, I, I had an injury anyway. So it, it, you never know. Uh, if you think that using risk reduction or risk, uh, this um, decrease the expectation, I, I, I get, the, I mean, uh, I accept this argument and, it may be also a, a strong argument. That's absolutely fine. Again, uh, it doesn't mean that you have to tell other people don't don't use prevention because it's wrong. You can say I would I prefer to use risk reduction or risk mitigation in, in clinical context because, in my opinion, it's clearer or don't create too much expectation. These kind of things. Yeah, uh, that's fine. But again, it's is a different discussion and. Uh, is is uh, it's like when we discuss about evidence base or um, is it, not an evidence base, let's say suggestion or it's it's uh, just a personal choice. And now there is a new term. I don't know, John, if you heard, uh, is reference based approach uh, that was proposed by Noonan, who is a meta researcher, because people are not using evidence-based. They, 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 they just show up some references. They just show you some references, speak here and there. 
So at one point he said, yeah, no, it's not evidence-based because people don't present the evidence. They just select some papers and they use those papers to support their statement, even if there are 70% of other papers stronger and better showing the opposite. So he created this new term that, that is reference-based uh, medicine that I like. I like the, the concept. I was about to say, I can't wait to weaponize that on Instagram. That's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, I want to I circle back real quick because when we were first talking and for anybody out there that's like holding their head and, and they've got this cracking headache with everything that's getting kind of discussed here. I remember before we started recording, you talked about simplicity and complexity and uncertainty. And I think one of the things that my brain is trying to grasp onto right now is in all the uncertainty, I think what this started to, to help people with is, is create some simplicity around it. But I mean, I'm a, I'm a dad. I know the longer I've been doing this thing, the more complex that whole situation has gotten. Um, and as a researcher and as in, in, in academia and as a coach, you mentioned before, the longer you've been doing this, the more complex it just starts to show itself. And we just went through a string of like, added little complexities, little nuances and little pieces that can be tacked onto the puzzle that you may not be thinking about that just make it complex. And as much as we try to take this really complex thing and smash it into this simple box, it's just going to keep breaking out. Like, that's the sense that I get. So like, what are your thoughts along those things, especially as you've continued to A, grow your coaching and scientific tree of people, um, but your own journey through that? Yeah, that's actually the, the, my lack of uh, ability to cope with uncertainty was the reason why I started research, because I was really uncomfortable. Every time I, I, I wrote a, a training program, I had a lot of doubts and that feeling was, I mean, uh, was psychologically very stressful. And I, I, I started research because I was thinking to find a way to cope with my uncertainty um, in, in, in research. So I would think, okay, doing research or reading research, I will have a better, a clear picture. So I'm more, I'm sure about what I'm, I'm going to do. And the initially, and that's why I understand why some people approach. Initially, I use that to, to, uh, fight this uh, feeling but the problem is that to fight the feeling I had to accept the evidence as something like you know the Bible so oh the, this is what uh, is written I have to do that so th in this way I could control my uncertainty because I had all my rules based on some literature the problem is that reading um, papers and the methodology and also the experience uh, uh, at one point, I realized that, that, that it was a bullshit. I mean, I was, I, I, I was, uh, I, I was fooling myself, and uh, so I said, "No, it doesn't work." Because when you are real, when you realize that you are uh, you are treating yourself, it, it doesn't work anymore. So I said, "No, it doesn't work." And what works over the years now, I can tell you, is that I accept that the process is plenty of uncertainties. And they can live with that. It's not a problem. And when I make a program, I know that I can fail. And if I fail, I don't say, oh, I'm bad. I use, I didn't read enough literature or these kind of things. When I choose something that is my personal choice, 
I know it's my personal choice and they take accountability and responsibility for what I'm, I'm doing. And uh, so the, the way I, I, I could handle the uncertainty is by accepting the uncertainty. And this is something I always, when I speak with people, I, I, I always suggest, I said, own your uncertainty. I mean, that's the only way to, to, to avoid all the consequences of not being able to cope with the uncertainty which is normally to create dogmas, uh, rules, uh, thresholds. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm against the use of thresholds, even if I understand it. It's useful from a practical perspective. Uh, so there is this value is above, let's say, asymmetry is 12% is too much. We have to go down. And I don't like this approach because I use in the past this kind of approaches. They, they don't work. I mean, they work if you are fooling yourself, but if you... Look objectively what happened. If I look what happened in my past with the others, they, they, they didn't work. I was reading and manipulating the interpretation to fit the narrative that I had in my mind uh, without being aware of doing that. So over years, now I'm aware of what I did in the past. I might try not to do that. But I can also recognize when the people do the same. And uh, you, you see this when... I cannot tell you the specific uh, the situation because otherwise some, someone would be disappointed. But I was in the situation in the opposite way. I was the coach and I went to speak with some uh, with the sports scientist uh, for the interpretation, the interpretation of the results. And I realized that what the sports scientist was doing is exactly what I was doing when I was interpreting the results in the past. So the, um, they start asking me, okay, how, how is it going? How your athletes are going? So they try to have from from me the information in order to interpret the results in a way they didn't diverge too much from my information if i, I if i said no they are good they, they are very they are not tired they are training well they are, they are competing well even if the the jump height was lower was ah uh, yeah maybe it is lower today because uh, they are tired today but overall uh, we don't think there is a problem you know and that's that's just uh, I don't know your experience. This happened to me several times, and did this exactly the same. But now I know that I did, I know why, and I can see when the others are doing that. So when I say that we use tests or measurements like the tarot, so we try to to read what we want, uh, is because of this. And the only way to avoid that is to understand the uncertainty of the measurements and all the factors that can influence the measures that you are, uh, uh, you are collecting that day. Because the measurement is a picture in, of that moment. So if the day before they were, for some reason, they were out with the friends and they were drunk, uh, you, you see a very bad result that doesn't reflect the, let's say, the chronic effects, for example, of an intervention. It's just an acute effect, but you don't know. So you have to account for these kind of vari variations. So for me... 12% of, uh, of asymmetry is exactly like if you say 7 or 8, it permits the same. There is this variation. So, and I use probably the wrong example because I don't, I don't care if it's even 15%. Okay, this is an editor's note. This is where my audio dropped. But I asked Franco if... Asking the patient explicitly what their understanding of certain terms are 
or their understanding of their own injury, or even if I have explained a term or a topic to them for them to reflect what they understood from that. So, so kind of have throw it to them and say, what did you, so what's your understanding of what we just talked about? And Franco gives his thoughts on that. And that's an assumption that is very dangerous. And, and if you think we, we have a lot of assumptions and I always say, you have to understand if your assumption is reasonable and you have also to try every time it's possible to test your assumption. This is a rule, let's say, in research, also in when you, you, you use statistic. But this is a rule that, for example, I use uh, every time I can to, like you said, I, I want to understand from their words if the, what I communicated was right, what they didn't what they did understand, what they misinterpret or whatever. That's the best way, the easiest way. Of course, it's not that easy because if you ask to people directly, can you tell me now what you understood? They, they may take this not very well. So it depends. But I mean, this is another, again, this is another kind of discussion how to communicate with people, but it, it works for any topic, not only clinical setting or whatever. But yes, I think that asking them is a way to check our assumptions that may be wrong. And this is editor's note number two. I then asked Franco what he would change if he could snap his fingers. What would he change about the strength and conditioning sports medicine field, especially from a research standpoint? Hmm, That's... uh... I tell you two things. So first is, if I can change something, I would uh, increase the education of everyone because it's, a, it's just a question of education. I mean, reading and studying. That's the way I know some things. And and the other thing I would do, and I, I use sometimes the Thanos uh, image for that, is that I would cancel half, randomly half of our studies, and I know that not it would change because most of the studies are methodologically weak. And for example, meta-analysis, the, there is too many meta-analysis and, and that I cannot really tell you a real good meta-analysis at the red. The problem is that the, the meta-analysis are perceived by people as the highest level of evidence, which is true in some ways, but people don't understand is the the level of evidence that I actually don't really like, but the accepted level of evidence uh, are based on the assumption that the studies in, in that in, in that uh, pyramid are good and without any flaws. And this is a huge assumption. So people think that uh, a meta-analysis is level one evidence, is the best evidence, and the weight they give to the results or to what is written in the meta-analysis is huge, and there's a lot of impact also in clinical, in clinical practice. So this means that we need to be more careful when we write or when we communicate meta-analysis. The problem is that, uh, especially because now you can use the R packages and for the analysis, the problem is that to run a proper meta-analysis is not that easy. I would say it's very difficult. You need a lot of time. And uh, people use meta-analysis as a shortcut to publish. So I think now we have a problem with the meta-analysis. Uh, we have a lot of meta-analysis which are potentially wrong and misleading. And as I said, I would cancel at least half of the meta-analysis 
that I'm, I'm quite sure that it wouldn't change a lot in terms of knowledge because they don't provide so as a uh, relevant knowledge because they most are are wrong. So then I'd probably tack, I'd probably tack on top of that to delete half of them and create a better standard for like the foundational research that goes into them. Cause we've seen plenty of evidence of things like P hacking and, and stuffing data and like all these things that, that, happen uh, and you still end up seeing some of these papers get included in some of these metas. So I, I agree completely. I think it would help reset the clock a little bit on some of those standards. Yeah. 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 We have, awesome. we have to do less and better. <clears throat> less and better. Do the, do the things that you're doing better. Okay, that's pretty much what yeah. it comes down to. I mean, uh, actually what, what I'm trying to do is to do better, of course, and but this means also that you need time. I give you an example. Uh, five years ago, when I started to dig in the training load injury area, and I start to receive an offer of collaboration or people pushing in studying more injury, I say, yeah, look, uh, I can do something like that, but I need some years. And also people cross me say, what do you mean years? I need some years because I I was for ten years in orthopedics. I know something, but I need years first to read all the literature and second to test my knowledge and improve my knowledge. And this is what I have done. And so this is the year in which I will probably start to set some big projects because more pro- I'm not really interested in small projects. And uh, so people need to understand they need time uh, to read, understand, and they need to have good people around better than you. If you, the people with in your circle are like you, yes, it's okay because you have some exchange, but you don't learn. You need to have be- people better than you in terms, scientifically speaking, of course, uh, around you. And that's the way I, 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 I learn. And sometimes it's frustrating because you think you understand something. When you speak with these people, you talk to these people, you, are, you realize you, you really don't. And I said, what the fuck? I mean, it's two years I'm studying that. I don't, I don't, and I'm lost. I cannot even understand what they are saying. And if you can cope with this bad feeling, psychological distress, that's the way to, to learn. And then this uh, push you in learning more. So we don't have to find confirmation to our ideas. We, we need to be able to engage in discussions and we need to support our ideas uh, using arguments that are logic. So even studying logic can be very useful. Yeah, so that's a bit what I would do, yeah. Yeah, so to really, I wanna, I wanna real, make really clear a piece of that. Find people that are gonna challenge you. Find people that are gonna have hard conversations and expect to have those hard conversations. Yeah. Like that, that is a big key, especially at the end, expect to have those conversations because that's ultimately what's going to make you better, make you smarter, make, make you healthier around this. Yeah, absolutely. You need, you need, you need to have a network uh, that cover all the areas that you are interested. For example, we had recently some discussion about the, 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 the dynamic systems and uh, we spoke with real experts of dynamic system and, and, and we realized that that the way dynamic systems are used in sport, medicine are, are a bit uh, questionable sometimes. Uh, and But 
we realize when we start to speak with this expert with from another field uh, because we, we we need to to track back the origin of things so if, if you if you want to know understand dynamic system it's better you start with with the books of Forrester to understand why he developed that and and for solving what kind of problems and this can um, this helps you in, in 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 understanding the essence and the conceptual reason why some systems were developed. I see most people use this complex dynamic system more like a, a nice word. You know, the world is complex. Uh, people are complex. Everything is multifactorial. And so the idea of a, a dynamic system uh, organizing by itself is is nice, but it dynamic system didn't start as a, a philosophy. Actually, Forrest developed to solve real practical problems. That is, if I if I uh, intervene in the system, how the system will adapt to my intervention? What will happen? So it was really practical. Indeed, the first the first book was in, in industrial, uh, uh, directed to industry, and the second was directed to the uh, uh, buildings and urban setting. Let's say so very practical. They were not just you know this holistic approach. Uh, they wanted they wanted to know if I intervene with something like building more houses for poor people, what will happen. So it's very causal. It's very intermediate um, is, is to understand the effect of interventions. While now is sometimes used to go against the idea of causation or things like that. But again, you need to study. You need to spend time, and you need to speak with the experts. That's 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 wow. the best. I Don't, appreciate that, and I appreciate the dynamic system comparison here because that I know that fired up Quinn's brain. So, Franco, thank you so much. Where can people find you? Well, uh, I'm less active on, on social uh, in the last years uh, because I'm too busy and also because I was a bit tired of having arguments with people. But still, I'm uh, on uh, social media. So I'm, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, or yeah, So that's the way to contact me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. It's been another great conversation with you, man. I, I got to be honest. Uh, every time we get to talk to you, it's one of my favorites. Uh, I walk away like really thinking about myself and my own process around these things. Um, so you've been a huge inspiration for my own personal growth. I know Quinn as well. He can't talk right now, so I'm just going to say that for him. But yeah. from both of us, thank you so much. Appreciate you coming on. And uh, we'll talk soon, man. Yeah. And I, I just want to remind that these are my personal opinions, so I don't pretend neither to be right or, yeah, you know, or to say people what to do. Don't tell me what I have to do if you don't have strong argument. That, 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 that's the point. So use whatever you want. Don't ask me to avoid using prevention if you don't have a stronger argument. That's beautiful. Okay. All right, man. Appreciate you so much. We'll talk soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed this show with Franco and Pelizzari, episode 100. If you're not following Franco on social media, you should. That info is in the show notes as well as a link to the paper that we discussed. And one more time, if you're into brain gains, 
Join the free Calo Community Facebook group for great discussions and resources and lots of learning and networking opportunities. And if you're ready to jump in with both feet into our famed Calu Plus community and take our foundations courses, then fill out the application that we have in the show notes and we'll talk. Otherwise, thank you so much, Clinical Athlete Community, all six of you, for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic for the last five years and 100 episodes. We'll talk to you soon.